there'll always be the risk of a claim being made. There's no way of completely removing that, but you can certainly be more confident going into a contracting relationship, provided you've got that good contract in place. And so it removes the risk to a degree. And so I, I agree with you. I don't think the default needs to be better employ them just to be on the safe side. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 344 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The GEMSEC case and the personal contracting case completely changed how we determine whether somebody is a contractor or an employee. And we discussed this change in the rules in detail in the last episode. Today, let's look at the actual High Court cases, the GEMSEC case and the personal contracting case. Here is Sam Harvery of Lex & Lex Lawyers in Sydney. In the Jamsec case, which the High Court determined uh, most recently, that involved a couple of truck drivers who provided their own trucks, but were providing work for a particular truck driving company for 30 years. All they ever worked for for 30 years was this one truck driving company. And in that case, because of the way in which the contract was drafted, they were held not to be employees, even though they claimed they were employees, they were held to be contractors. And that's because, as we've discussed, their written contract didn't say they needed to be at work every day, Monday to Friday. It conveyed more discretion on their part. And although in practice, the drivers argued they were required to turn up every day and drive every day, and that was merely the expectation, the court said, we're not interested in what, what the practice was. We're not interested in what the expectation was. We're only interested in what the contract said. What triggered the uh, court case? Did some truck drivers leave and wanted to retire and wanted to claim long service leave? No, they'd been terminated. Back in the early 80s, they had in fact been employees of the company. And then in the mid-1980s, the company had said, we want to treat you as contractors. We're going to enter into a new agreement with you. It's going to be a contracting relationship and we'll sell the trucks to you and you'll provide the trucks yourself then. And so that's what they did. And for 30 years, they were under these new agreements of contracting. And then after 30 years, the trucking company terminated their employment. And so evidently, they then went off and got legal advice. And, and the legal, legal advice would have been, well, it looks a lot like you were in practice, you were employees for the duration of that 30 years because you've worked for the same company for the entirety of that 30-year period. And so they took the, the trucking company to court and that made it all the way to the high court only for the High Court to say, no, they were in fact contractors the entire time, so they didn't get anything. Is it possible for the High Court to overrule legislation and court cases, not legislation, but court decisions of the past 20 years? Is it possible for the High Court to just completely break out? Isn't there a rule that you have to build on previous similar cases that you can't just suddenly come up with a completely different view? You can. Uh, well, that's exactly right. That's the notion of binding precedent so that if you have a superior court that makes a particular finding, all of the inferior courts below it are required to follow that finding. They can't just go off on a whim and change the law. But the high court is the highest court in the land. And so it has the final say. And so it is able to overrule judgments. And that's exactly what it did in these two cases. Uh, in, in JAMSEC, 
the full court of the federal court. So one court below the high court had ruled that the two drivers were employees. And then it went to the high court and the high court overruled them and said, no, they were contractors. And there had been no high court decision before regarding the distinction between employees and contractors? There have. So the last one was in 2001. And so that's why these decisions are so important because they don't make it to the high court very often. And so when they make rulings, they tend to set the law for an extended period. And so we can expect personnel contracting and JAMSEC, the two recent decisions, to form the, the binding precedent for the next 20 years or so, assuming that the parliament doesn't come in and introduce a legislative change, for example. So the High Court can basically renege on its previous decisions? In this particular case, they didn't expressly overturn the previous decision from 2001, but they distinguished it. So they said, well, in 2001, in Hollis and Varbu, the court, as, as it was then constituted, because it was obviously different judges being seven, uh, 20 years ago, they said, those judges were looking at a particular case which was factually different and that case really stands by itself and even though courts for the last 20 years had followed that decision because they thought it was binding and applied to everyone the high court has now said no it was wrong to follow that case in the way that everyone has because you don't look at the entirety of the relationship as had been occurring for the last 20 years you just look at the contract Does it now mean that every small business that has been fined and lost court cases in the last 20 years can go back and refer to this new high court decision? No, they won't be able to because a principle called res judicata, which essentially means that once a case has been decided and finished, you can't then start to re-agitate the same case. So there's, there's no sort of ability to reopen cases that were already determined, even if those cases were probably going to go a different way based on the most recent judgments. What it means is that moving forwards, if if companies, you know, properly document their relationships in the way that we've discussed, they'll have protection. They go backwards though and re-agitate matters that have already been decided. There's still a lot of grey in there. So for example, there's flexibility with respect to hours because you're a casual employee, but the location is fixed, for example, because it's a cafe. You don't bring your own tools, you can't sub subcontract, and you are under the control of the employer while you work. So you still have this gray where you ask, you know, well, could I get away with treating that as a contractor or yeah, asking it differently. When there are some factors that talk for a contractor position and some factors talk for an employee position, then it basically just comes down to what the parties agree. If the parties agree it's an employment relationship, then it is. And if the parties agree that it's a contractor relationship, then it is. You know, how do you handle those gray, gray bits in the middle? Well, then that's where a court would ultimately be required to make a determination. And so you're entirely right. The example of a barista, as I say, although the position has got better than it was a few months ago, if you were to call a barista an independent contractor, it's still not clear cut because they're fundamentally, it's a little tricky to suggest that a barista is running their own business from your cafe. And so if in the contract itself, there are factors which point both ways, it's going to come down to the court's consideration of those factors. And ultimately it's going to have to make a decision one way or another, weighing them up trying to work out, is this person genuinely conducting their own business? Do they genuinely have the freedom to perform their work as and when they decide, you know, all those types of factors? Or 
are they called a contractor in the document, but for all intents and purposes, they are completely integrated into the business. They're entirely subservient to the cafe and therefore the cafe is actually their employer. There are cases where it's going to be grayer. For example, you know, tradespeople, because often tradespeople do have their own tools and they might, for all intents and purposes, work for a company and get most of their work from a particular company, but treat, be treated as a subcontractor. These types of cases that have been handed down might tip the dial in favour of them being held to be genuinely uh, contractors rather than employees. Even in the wake of COVID, the fact that so many people can now perform their work from home suggests that it's possible that some types of white collar jobs that can be done from home are more likely to be held to be independent contracting relationships if that's what the contract tries to set them up as than employees. You know, because it is conceivable that you can have someone who, who does an office job and historically might always have been considered an employee because they were in the office nine to five, Monday to Friday. It might now be more arguable, both in, in terms of accountants, in terms of lawyers. It's possible to establish contracts which suggest that they're more in the nature of consultants conducting their own business, but providing some services to, you know, the accounting firm or to the law firm. And those types of cases are going to be really interesting. And I think these cases have tipped the dial towards a finding that they are contractors rather than employees. Yes, you're right. And more white collar workers will move into contractor positions now with this ruling. Question, what happens if there's no contract? Well, that's an interesting question because the, the court hasn't determined that. So although we've got, you know, a new rule that the contract is king, there are still these things to be sorted out through subsequent cases which argued the points. And so, for example, when we were talking about the issue of, you know, variation of the contract, when we were talking about sham, those things haven't yet been resolved in the context of these latest decisions of personnel, personnel contracting and, and JAMSEC. Similarly, what the court is required to do when there is no written contract hasn't been clearly spelled out. What my impression is, is that we would essentially use the old rule of looking at the totality of the relationship to try and work out whether or not it was a contracting or employment relationship because there's nothing else to look at. If you don't have a written contract, all you really have is, you know, the actual performance of the work to look at and try and make a determination from. And so that's why, again, it's so important to have a written contract in place because if you do as a, as a principle to a contract, The argument is so much easier for you. You can simply point to your contract and say, there's my watertight contract saying that this person is an employee, uh, sorry, is a contractor, not an employee. That's essentially the argument done, provided that the contract is, is drafted properly. If you don't have the written contracts, then you're back to square one, which is someone arguing that they were an employee the whole time and pointing to everything they ever did in the course of their relationship that suggests that, that they were an employee, the fact that they had, you know, your business cards, the fact that they had a email address that ended with the, uh, the company's name, for example, all of those things they would point to, to say, I was embedded in your business. I wasn't running my own business and providing services to you. And so you, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage. A significant disadvantage if you don't have a watertight written contract. So for businesses, if you want to treat your workers as contractors, make sure you have a contract because with a contract, contract is king. If you don't have a contract, then it comes back to totality of relationship and that puts you at a disadvantage, especially if your workers kind of 
look like employees. I think that's exactly right. As I say, it hasn't yet been conclusively dealt with by a court because we've only had these latest decisions of the High Court for a couple of months and it'll take a while for the sort of for the ground to settle. But you know, I don't think most small businesses want to make themselves the test case either. And so they don't want to be in a situation where they're having to argue about these kind of loose ends that are yet to be dealt with by the High Court because of course that costs money. And it also involves potential liability at the end of the day if a court holds that they are employees. And so for a relatively small amount in terms of getting a, a contract prepared by lawyers, um, you're looking at avoiding potentially significant costs down the track. So both Jamsec and personal contracting case went all the way to the high court? Wow, that's amazing. So we didn't have any cases with respect to employee versus contractor going to the high court for 20 years. And then within a short period of a few months, we had two cases going to the high court. That's right. And, you know, the, the high court controls what cases it hears to a certain degree. For example, in order to take a matter to the high court, you require special leave, which basically involves the high court giving a preliminary tick to the case saying, yes, this is worthy of a sufficiently unclear and important area of law for us to consider. And what happened was personnel contracting and JAMSEC were both winding their way through the court systems separately, but at roughly the same time. And they both involved different facts, but the same issue. And so when there were the applications for these matters to, to go to the High Court, the High Court heard them together and decided to determine them together. And the benefit of that is just that they can cover a greater sort of factual scope because they've got two different cases to use as examples in applying the same outcomes. And so we're fortunate in a way to have these two cases because we know We, we know how certain kinds of issues are going to be resolved moving forwards. But having said that, they can't resolve every issue in this area through two cases. And that's why there's the, the remaining loose ends that will, that will work their way through the court systems in other matters that we've discussed where those other types of arguments are made. Okay. And so different to legislation that has a specific start date that might be in the future, these two court cases are now basically already applicable. So anything from the issue of these court cases, from these decisions, anything going forward is now covered by these court cases. And it's not circumstances that start from this, these court decisions. It's anything that goes to the court from now on will be governed by these two decisions, correct? So even if something happened 20 years ago, it doesn't matter if it comes to the courts now, then it will be governed by those two decisions. That's correct. What the judges in these two cases have essentially said is this was always the law. It's just that it was always being incorrectly applied by lower courts. They've essentially come in and said, no, this is the way to do it. And this is the way it will be. And this is the way it always should have been. And so if you're you know, a business and you've had a contractor for five years, this case still applies. It's not as though you necessarily need a new contract to be put in place in the wake of this decision. It's just a question of whether the contract that you had five years ago adequately describes the relationship in many of the ways that we've discussed. And so, you know, if the, for example, in the personnel contracting case that involved, it was essentially a labor hire arrangement where a British backpacker had, in, had been engaged by a labor hire company and their contract with the labor hire company said, you're an independent contractor. 
we'll send you wherever we like and you're required to go to those workplaces and abide by the directions and follow the rules essentially. And so when the High Court looked at personnel contracting, they said, well, yes, they were called a contractor, so it has that label put on it, but personnel contracting, the company had so much control over where the work was performed and how it was performed because the contractor was essentially at the whim of the company that the, the court found that that particular backpacker was in fact an employee, not a, not a contractor at all. And so it has ramifications for that company. That's a Western Australian labour hire company because it obviously has a whole lot of people on these types of contracts. And in, in the context of this, this decision, all those people are actually going to be employees. And so they potentially have a significant liability hanging over them from this decision. And so, again, coming back to my original point, you don't necessarily need a new contract if you've already got one in place, but this, this case law applies to it regardless of when you entered into that contract. And if the contract is deficient in terms of the indicia that we've spoken about, then you remain exposed in the same way as the company in personnel contracting was exposed. Why do you call it personal contracting case and not CFMEU versus construct? Well, construct is the business name. So, and, you know, with any kind of case, they pick up nicknames essentially. And so the short form name in which people refer to CFMEU and personnel contracting, everyone just calls it personnel contracting. Similarly with JAMSEC, there were two parties to JAMSEC, but everyone just calls it JAMSEC. It's just what's caught on. And CFMEU is the um, union for, I think, construction. It's the Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union. And is that the union that had its offices smashed in during the COVID anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne? That's right, the Victorian branch. And so I assume that the union represented the backpacker? And then the union then sued the company, which was called Construct. That's right. Under the Fair Work Act, a union also has standing on behalf of its members. And so the CFMEU ran the case for the individual. And that meant, obviously, that they had deeper pockets in terms of legal fees, because, of course, a British backpacker doesn't necessarily have the funds to run a matter all the way to the High Court. What the union will have been doing in this case is using it as a test case in the hope that they would succeed and then be able to apply it to other members. And so the CFMEU yeah, actually won. And so they actually, until now, I kind of always saw this as a bad decision for employees. But in this case, it was actually a good decision for employees because it means you can't call somebody a contractor and then the rest of the contract is basically describing an, em an employment relationship. That's right. But the problem is by publishing the judgment, there's essentially now a guidebook on how to draft a contract in order to make it as much as possible a contracting relationship rather than an employment relationship. And so, you know, companies like personnel contracting, labor hire companies, will now draft contracts to avoid all the mistakes that the court found that personnel contracting had made. And so that's, in a way, the downside, because although, in a way, it'll be a Pyrrhic victory for employees because and for the union, because although they won in that particular case, they, they've also contributed to a judgment which will be unhelpful on the whole, because, in, because 
uh, labor hire companies will be able to draft their contracts more carefully now. Yes, and I already tried to come up with the list of things that needs to go into these contracts. But since you just said that this CFMEU decision or personal contracting case is basically like a guidebook for companies how to draft contracts, could you give me a list of what needs to go into these contracts or what these contracts need to say to make them more clearly a contracting relationship? Sure. Well, I can read part of the judgment from you for you. The the key finding was that under the contracts, the backpacker promised construct to work as directed by construct and by construct's customer handset. So that's point one. The, the contract provided that the contractor would work under the direction of the principal. And as we've talked about, the more sort of flexibility and discretion you give to a contractor, Therefore, the more likely they are to be found to be genuinely a contractor rather than an employee. Then they said, Mr. McCourt, who was the backpacker, was entitled to be paid by construct in return for the work he performed pursuant to that promise. So he was being paid because of the promise he had made to abide by the direction and instruction he received. Then they say that promise to work for construct's customer and his entitlement to be paid for that work were at the core of construct's business of providing labor to its customers. The right to control the provision of Mr. McCourt's labor was an essential asset of that business. Uh, and that's why I've talked about the significance of control quite a bit in our discussion. And then they say, Mr. McCourt's performance of work for and at the direction of Hansen was a direct result of the deployment by construct of this asset in the course of its ongoing relationship with its customer. In these circumstances, it is impossible to conclude other than that Mr. McCourt's work was dependent upon and subservient to Construct's business. That being so, Mr. McCourt's relationship with Construct is rightly characterized as a contract of service rather than a contract for services. Mr. McCourt was Construct's employee. And so you can see there, they're going through all of the factors we've discussed in terms of control, the fact that he worked under direction, And so it's impossible to create a shopping list a shopping list of essentially saying, if you put these words in the contract, it's a tick box exercise and it will always be held to be found to be contracting relationship rather than an employment relationship. But if the overall nature of the contract is one in which an individual is working under the control and direction of a company or a small business or whatever the case may be, it's much more likely to be held to be an employment relationship. If it's the case that the person who's been called a contractor has a level of self-direction and is almost um, you know, self-employed in a sense, then it's much more likely that that contract is going to be held to be genuinely a contracting relationship rather than an employment relationship. So it's actually less dear than I first thought. It's not enough to just say you're a contractor it very much comes down to then what type of relationship is agreed. That's exactly right. And the court specifically says the mere label alone isn't enough. So simply because you have a contract that says you will be an independent contractor, that's not enough. And that's obviously why they failed in personnel contracting. What you need is that the rights and duties have to be in the nature of someone who is separate from the business providing services to it rather than embedded in the business under the control and direction of the business, subservient to the business. Those are the words used in the case. And those were that's those that was the key finding in the personnel contracting case. And that's the reason why 
the labor hire company lost in that case. How long did the backpacker work for Construct? It must have been longer because otherwise it wouldn't have been worth going all the way to the high court for five weeks of work. Uh, I'm not entirely sure actually how long he was there for, but again, the CFMEU, the union, will have specifically picked him as a test case. And, and so in his matter, they won't really have been worried about the dollar value of what the case was worth to him. Because it was the principle. Yeah, they'll, they'll have been thinking about the precedent that would be established. And for example, because personnel contracting, evidently we're using a contract template and they now have that liability in relation to their, their other contractors who, in the context of this case, were actually employees. The CFMEU will consider that a win because they'll be able to say all those people were actually employees and therefore they're all entitled to payment of their employment entitlements. But the, the loss of the case for the union is that the court has said, you just look at the contract and they've almost set out, you know, a bit of a guidebook on how to, the key elements that you need to draft the contract to ensure that it's most likely to be found to be a contracting relationship. And, you know, you can guarantee the first thing personnel contracting is working on is having its contracts redrafted so that they don't face this kind of scenario again. So for small businesses means you will need to spend more money on employment contracts, but then you will probably spend less money on defending yourself against claims. Actually, one can't say that because, yeah, it all comes down to how the contract is worded and how the re reality is then reflected in the contract, correct? It's difficult to kind of really predict how it will Yeah, well, let me ask differently. So what are the practical consequences from this decision? Well, it's much harder for people who are in contracting agreements to argue that they were actually employees. And so I think that you'll probably see less claims being made. I think also that in any claims that are made, people who are saying they're employees are going to have to get a bit more creative in their arguments to try and argue around the contract, which is going to be very difficult to do in light of this, um, these decisions. So they'll be making arguments about variation or um, sham, like we discussed, but those are automatically more difficult to establish than it is to simply say, look at the entirety of the relationship. I was clearly integrated into the business. Don't, don't worry about what the contract said. Look at the practical reality, which is what we used to be able to do. Those types of arguments you know, are going to fall away and we're not going to see them very much. And so what it means in practice for a small business, again, I can only reiterate, it's important to have a contract in place because provided that you've got a contract that avoids some of the pitfalls that we saw in personnel contracting. So provided you've got a contract that's more like what we saw in the JAMSEC decision where the court said, yes, this truly was a contracting relationship. It's going to be so much easier for you to defend a claim. It's going to be less likely that people are going to even bother to bring claims against you in the first place. And if they do bring claims against you, you're going to have a better bargaining position in any negotiations because most matters do settle, but your position is going to be stronger from a legal perspective and therefore your bargaining position in terms of settlements is going to be better. You're probably going to end up paying out less in terms of those claims. So for the cost involved of having a contract drafted and carefully drafted to accord with what the court has said in these two cases, you're potentially avoiding a lot of costs down the track. So rather than saying, if in doubt, treat them as employees, now it's, if in doubt, make sure you have a contract. 
That's right. And there'll, there'll always be the risk of a claim being made. There's no way of completely removing that, but you can certainly be more confident going into a contracting relationship provided you've got that good contract in place. And so it removes a lot of the, it removes the risk to a degree. And so I, I agree with you. I don't think the default needs to be better employ them just to be on the safe side. Welcome back. So contract is king unless you can show that the contract was a sham or outdated. Over the next three episodes, let's go back to section 100A and the related guardian case. And let me just quickly tell you what we are going to cover in those three episodes. You already had episode 339 and 340 where we looked at the four ATO publications. But now in the next three episodes, with Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne, let's do the following. In episode 345, let's discuss the Guardian case. This case is highly relevant when you have overseas clients deriving income in Australia and possibly channeling this income through a company. In episode 346, let's look at Blue Zone arrangements. You might remember that PCG 2022-1 has a traffic light system with white zone green zone, blue zone, and red zone. So look at this piggy in the middle, the blue zone arrangements, when something is neither green nor red, but in between. And then in episode 347, let's do a final run for section 100A, covering all the questions that you have had so far that have come up since we started talking about section 100A. And so this is in the pipeline for you. So next week, it is the Guardian case, and this case is really interesting because the ATO didn't just lose on one element, not just on two, but the ATO lost on three elements, and all are equally surprising. Until then, thank you for listening, and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now, and see you in the next episode.